Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm really happy to be here uh, to celebrate the Williams Institute's uh, 10th anniversary. I wouldn't be in the position I'm, I am in without the support of the Institute. Um, and I'm really excited that uh, Lee decided to do a panel on social movements um, because the LGBT rights movement really is uh, a very successful movement that's come a long way in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, and so we're here thinking about uh, what the movement has done, what the movement will do, uh, and what the role of the Williams Institute is uh, in that movement. Um, and. Uh, the LGBT rights movement has also provided new material for scholars thinking about social movements. Uh, and so a lot of the leading scholars in the field now uh, sort of uh, can't uh, uh, avoid talking about what's going on in the LGBT rights movement. Um, and I think we also need to pay attention to um, coalitions with other social movements and what the broader vision of social justice is uh, for the LGBT rights movement. And so uh, we have four panelists um, who are going to address some of these questions. Uh, and it's a real honor for me to be up here with them. Uh, they're activists and scholars who I've long admired. One great thing about the Williams Institute is they bring together uh, real leaders in the field. And so um, for uh, someone relatively new like me, it's great to have folks who um, I've been following their work or reading their scholarship uh, uh, with great admiration and to get them uh, to come here and speak uh, is a real pleasure. Uh, so uh, first uh, up today is uh, David Meyer, who is a professor of sociology, political science, uh, and planning policy and design at the University of California at Irvine. Uh, uh, Professor Meyer uh, focuses on social movements, political sociology, uh, and public policy, uh, and is most directly concerned with the relationships between social movements and the political contexts in which they emerge. Uh, he's published uh, numerous articles and uh, published books and edited books, uh, including The Politics of Protest, Social Movements in America, uh, Routing the Opposition, and Social Movements, Identity, Culture, and the State. And I've um, cited his work everywhere and think he has a lot to say to uh, uh, folks studying law and policy as well. Uh, up after Professor Meyer is Christine Chavez, who is the farm worker coordinator for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, Christine has made a lifetime commitment to public service, civil rights, and the labor movement. Uh, and for years, she worked with the United Farm Workers Union, the organization that her grandfather, Cesar Chavez, uh, founded uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and um, uh, Christine has served as the uh, farm workers' political director. Uh, she's engaged in the SEIU, Local 1877's battle against the uh, LAX. Uh, she's been involved with numerous um, uh, campaigns uh, and is going to, I think, shed a lot of light on uh, what we can learn from other social movement contexts when thinking about LGBT rights. Uh, after Christine, we have uh, Scott Barclay, uh, who is on the faculty at the University of Albany and is also um, program director for law and social sciences at the National Science Foundation. Um, Scott's research interests are in uh, the signals that individuals receive in their interactions with courts, uh, as well as the way that state institutions respond to social movements, cause lawyers, and the media. Uh, and like uh, David, Scott has written some really uh, influential pieces on uh, law and social movements and has paid particular attention actually to um, LGBT uh, rights work. Uh, and finally, we have Evan Wolfson, uh, who for this crowd, I think, uh, needs little introduction. Uh, Evan is the founder and president of Freedom to Marry. Um, previously, he worked uh, as a lawyer at Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund at the time. Um, he uh, 
was involved with the uh, first case of the modern same-sex marriage movement, the Hawaii litigation. Uh, he's argued before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in the Dale case, and he's the author of Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, uh, and Gay People's Right to Marry. So we're going to start off uh, with uh, Professor Meyer. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be here and talk with you about social movements and social change. I started studying social movements about the time I was 13 for my bar mitzvah with the idea that if I learned about how social change worked and mistakes and successes in the past, I could help people be more effective in the future. That's still an open question whether that's true, but maybe we can help answer it today. I'm going to start with the end because I've got about an hour and 15 minutes and they're not going to let me go on. The conclusion, every win that a social movement gets is partial, reversible, and it creates new politics and choices about new claims to make, what constituencies to mobilize, and whom to trust as an ally. Uh, patterns in social movement politics. This is what I'm going to talk about. What are movements? When do they emerge strongly? What do they do? How do they matter? What can we learn? Social movements. Multiple organizations and, move and individuals. Coordination among them is very difficult and contested. It's easy to get in and out. There are no membership rules in movements in America. Blurry boundaries between who's in and who's out. And diverse activities and claims. The links between the margins and the mainstream of a movement is the critical thing that I'm going to come back to at the end, if we ever get to the end. Okay? All kinds of movements. These are just the few I was thinking about this morning. Okay? Here's my example just to show you a movement. Anti-war movement. Organizations that don't agree on lots of politics. Individuals who are self-motivated, self-organized, and largely uncontrollable and can get huge amounts of attention. Events. Stuff happens and movement identities are attached to it. Diverse tactics, ranging from disrupting a congressional, te a congressional testimony to lobbying to elections to civil disobedience. Movements are most successful when they're all under the same broad umbrella. Okay. Plus institutional allies. In the case of the peace movement, it was the military, elected officials, mass media, and partisan politics. In 2006, all the Democrats running for office you know, were opposed to the war. Okay. Public opinion is a resource for a movement, and it's also an effect of a movement. Okay, that's just the war. Now, lessons are going to come up, and they're in kind of pinkish-purple, and you probably won't be able to see them. One is movements can change the world. And I had to pick a contemporary example. It was easy to get a nice picture. Movements change our lives. I was thinking about my public school, where my kids go, and how diverse the population is and how unthinkable that would have been 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the world changes fast. Policy matters in not only society, but in the way we live our lives and the way we think about people around us. Okay. Winning is about our allies. In 2010, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a victory, and the DREAM Act was a defeat. And it's not because those courageous DREAM Act activists weren't well organized, weren't courageous, or that they did anything wrong. 
Social movement participation. Although we project movements as a unified thing, we talk about the gay and lesbian movement, the peace movement, there's much diversity, disputation underneath that umbrella. A range of interests, commercial, ideological, political interests, a range of activities, lots of disputes. I mean, the people you hate the most are the people you're sitting across the table from in those four-hour meetings late at night. And you're just like, I want to go home, but I can't let you win on this. And they're united only because somebody on the outside seems even worse most of the time. United by provocation or opportunity and organizing. Internal diversity. Here's a schematic way to think about internal diversity. There are people who are always going to be out there on the front lines, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Win, lose, they don't care. They're making a statement. They don't give up. They're heroes. They're often nuts. And I admire them. They tend to be marginal most of the time. And they tend to be the core during times when movements can actually make a difference. There's a pacifist activist. There's an anti-abortion activist. They don't care. They think what they're doing is so important, they're always going to be out there. There are long-time activists who move from movement to movement, depending upon whatever is most promising at the moment. And I was thinking about Barbara Deming and David McReynolds last week. I don't remember why. It was some article about pacifism or something. And they were both active in gay and lesbian issues, but that was probably 2 to 6% of their activism. Others join in sometimes, depending upon threats and opportunities. And it's more unusual, more significant. Watch the crowd. Pay attention to the activists who aren't long-timers, the ones who are only occasionally involved. Individuals who engage in an activity for them that is not professional or not usual. That's a statue of Cincinnatus. Did anybody recognize him? Leaving his plow because of the emergency and then returning back to the plow when the emergency changes. Focus on the crowd. The crowd makes movements powerful. I was thinking about tea parties, the Boston Tea Party. Tea Party in 2009 in Boston. And it's the people who are not the longtime activists who turn out occasionally in crisis who you really want to pay attention to. Closer links among groups. What does that say? (laughs) Institutional allies, diversity of tactics. Okay, that's how movements are effective when that broad spectrum is seen to be part of something as a whole. Boy, I I picked a crappy color. Links between the margins and the mainstream, use your radical flank. And the way American politics works works is all about breaking those connections apart. Right now, John Boehner is having conniptions trying to figure out how to be a responsible politician to the Republican Party's long-term interest in those Tea Party people. And he's going nuts. And that's going to fragment at some point. And that's how movements end in American politics. Social movement influence. It's complicated. Isn't that suck when academics say that? (laughs) Policy. Rhetoric and substance of policy. Politics. Positions and organizations. Culture, values, and individuals. How do they affect influence? Key. 
not by themselves. It's not only the demonstration, the lobbying, you need allies. Okay? Unexpected outcomes, often unintended. I'm going to take us through a couple movements. Never fast enough, never enough. Movements always end up disappointed no matter how much they achieve. And they rarely get credit for making change. Okay. Long timeline. I wanted to pick like a really successful social movement, and I thought about the campaign against cigarette smoking. And I'm not smoking now, and I could have been doing that 30, 40 years ago when I was talking to you. And that mo this is a graph of cigarette smoking in the United States from the Surgeon General's report to just about now. And now, almost 50 years later, about one in five Americans smokes. And you say, well, that's huge. Look at that drop. And then you say, but wait, one in five Americans still smokes. Okay. And I keep this in mind when I think about the influence of social movements and how we have to realize that it's never, ever enough. Okay. Public opinion on same-sex marriage. Somebody's got a graph like this out in one of the great posters that are out there. Don't trust public opinion. Public opinion is volatile and reversible. This is evolution. A third of Americans don't believe in evolution that believe in a 6,000-year-old Earth. Okay? And the percentage of Americans who believe in that has gone up over the last 15 years. Don't trust public opinion. Is that a lesson? Okay. How movements work. Draw attention to issues as urgent and actionable. Create rhetorical political space for alternatives. Demand explanation. Why can't gay people get married? Well, and every time those explanations are written, there's a possibility for movement. Okay? And sometimes, in efforts to quell movements, governments offer reform. Okay. You can matter without getting what you want. Okay. Policy responses always reflect a part, not all, of what movements ask for satisfying some constituencies within a movement and making other people just angrier and feel more disappointed. I worked so hard for equality and all I got was the Voting Rights Act. Okay? They erode connections within the social movement. This is a key thing. Every policy outcome creates tensions within a movement about how to respond to that policy outcome. Satisfying some people and just aggravating others. Okay? Um, Multiple venues for action. The Truman administration, as you know, filed a uh, amicus brief in the Brown case saying that doing something about, about segregation was absolutely critical to national security because of the propaganda beatings the United States was taking from the Soviet Union. Institutions influence each other. Okay. Don't trust the courts. The reproductive rights movement, which made this great gain in the courts in, in 1973, has spent the last 39 years focused on defending, with mixed success, that one decision. Okay. And a broader agenda has mostly disappeared. Okay. To get things done, you need multiple actors doing different things. That's Jackie Robinson in 1947. Who knows that Jackie Robinson was court-martialed? Only one person. Jackie, Mar uh, Jackie Robinson was a college graduate. He went to UCLA. That's okay because UCI hadn't been built yet. <laughs> and he was also an officer in the military. He was court-martialed at Fort Hood 
for refusing to move to the back of a bus. Rosa Parks knew that. This uh, young woman who uh, was arrested earlier that same year, who is mostly forgotten to history, and the Highlander Institute, multiple actors. It's never just one person doing one thing, although the story that we hear just focuses on Rosa Parks. Okay? There was support from government because government had other interests that had nothing to do with civil rights. Okay? That's uh, Vietnam, by the way, other interests. Okay? Dramatic demonstrations, protests with violence uh, that demonstrators suffered, Conflict and polarization, that's the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's John Lewis. I tell my students that whenever you see a black man from the era being beaten, bet that it's John Lewis. It won't always be, but that's your best odds. I mean, this is just an extraordinarily courageous man who was on the front lines all the time. Uh, Lyndon Johnson made a speech a couple weeks after the Edmund Pettus Bridge incident. And I'm not going to read it to you now, but it's, it's uncharacteristically eloquent and inspiring. And he ended, and I mean, particularly if you've lived through an era of two George Bushes, right? Uh, he ended with a line from the movement, we shall overcome. Right? Danger after victories. What happens after voting rights? Movements fragment. What do we do next? What's the most promising or urgent issue? And there are disputes about what the most promising or urgent thing to do after any victory. Martin Luther King turned to the war and took a lot of flack for it. I like to show pictures from protests about the Vietnam War. National and local, Democratic National Convention, inside and outside institutions. Those are those radical pacifists you hear about. Veterans and yippies, that's Abby Hoffman who is much more entertaining than John Kerry. <laughs> Protest in courthouses and through the legal system. Somebody who went to law school knows that case. Cultural events. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible protest song. Some of you remember it. I'm not going to sing it, be grateful to this limited time. But the key lines, you're old enough to kill, but not for voting. And think about the response of the government. Okay, <laughs> vote. Okay. Taking your rhetoric, giving you something, but not quite. Okay, the draft ends. June, um, I think the last person inducted was June 3rd, 1973. Imagine being the last person. long-term effects are more complicated. You know, the movement ultimately ended the war in Vietnam, and it led to a smaller volunteer armed forces with restrictions on the use of troops abroad that mostly lasted until Iraq, so 30 years, War Powers Act, Vietnam Syndrome, and a much, much, much smaller peace movement. You know, we all know, that if there was conscription, that war would not have taken place. Movements crest in response to perceived threats or opportunities. They grow by unifying broad, diverse constituencies that create political problems or opportunities. Responses have unpredictable consequences. So now for the uh, gay and lesbian movement, after marriage in the military, 
lessened sense of urgency and possibility, narrowed activist coalition who still cares, and questions about what are the next goals, alliance partners, and mobilizing strategies. What is to be done? I hope this is my last slide. I always want this to be the last slide. Okay. Broad strategy which maintains a focus on multiple institutions, diverse coalition, lots of people engaged, continued escalation of claims, maintain ties to the radical edge because that's the thing that kills movements when they lose their left. Yay! <laughs> Thank you um, for inviting me today as you celebrate your, uh, your 10th year anniversary. And I also want to congratulate um, the Institute for 10 very successful years. Um, it's, an, you know, it's really an honor to be with such a, a great group of panelists. Um, my husband this morning was looking through the materials. He said, oh my God, have you seen the people that are on your panel? I was like, I'm already freaked out enough. Yes. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, I'm also proud to announce that I just joined um, the Freedom to Marry board, and so hopefully we're going to be doing some great work there. I also want to acknowledge a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine who's joined us today. Um, he's the, political, the national political director for the United Farm Workers, and he also sits on our board, and that's Gieve Cash Cooley, who's back there. So Phil... Um, Eve has been around a lot longer than I have in this movement, and um, so feel free to lob some questions to him as well. Um, but just some background on myself. I'm, I'm one of 32 grandchildren of Cesar Chavez. I currently live in Washington, D.C. Um, with my husband, Oscar, and we share our home with our two dogs, Buddy and Boycott, and that's a way, as a way to pay tribute <laughs> to my grandfather. Um, Currently, I work um, as a presidential appointee in the, uh, with the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, I work in the Office of Outreach and Advocacy, um, and in that office, we have five different program areas, and I work as the farm worker coordinator, sort of making, um, serve as a liaison to farm workers and their advocates about different services that USDA has to offer. Um, you know... As, as many of you know, the United Farm Workers is a union that today works hard to protect the rights of workers in the fields. It was founded almost 50 years ago by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and several others who believe farm workers needed to be treated with respect and dignity, and that one way to achieve this was through collective bargaining. So the topic of today's panel is lessons from other social movements, and I wanted to share some insight with you about a movement that I've been blessed to be a part of uh, most of my life. Um, the farm worker movement has its roots that date back to the 1950s and the 1960s. It was part of, of a larger civil rights effort in the U.S. that had its share of accomplishments and struggles. The farm worker movement influenced public opinion and raised awareness about national cries for help such as the great boycott and ending violence. And there's no question that the farm worker movement was a reflection of social movements that preceded it. I believe there are current efforts underway which can be strengthened by embracing civil rights and farm worker strategies. So in order to prepare for my, for my presentation, I reached out to several mentors of mine and former colleagues of my grandfather who had helped at different, um, who helped during various phases of the United Farm Workers. And not only were my conversations uh, very insightful, but I noticed that there was three different elements um, that were raised that came up more than once with the people that I spoke with. 
And at the top of that list is longevity. Uh, longevity in terms of how you keep people involved in a cause long after we've won significant battles or experienced tragic setbacks. So the UFW was very concerned that once we won concessions because of the great boycott that we would have supporters who would claim victory and then they would move on. And the flip side is during a setback of any kind, such as the passing of our co-founder, Cesar Chavez, and concerns about you know, who, would carry on, um, who would carry on the torch. So in the case of LGBT rights and how it relates to longevity, we could use gay marriage as an example. You and I are fully aware that marriage equality is just a starting point in terms of engaging the broader public. But it's critical to build off the momentum and progress both in terms of policy, but also in terms of capacity building for future fights. And it's not about winning or losing fights in a social justice movement. It's about long-term gains. Keep your base involved, generating new leadership, electing friendly politicians, supporting think tanks and policy groups like the Williams Institute, and most importantly, protecting the progress that has been made. The second element that is essential to a social movement is coalition building. And this is a critical component to sustaining a social movement. Coalition building played a key role in the success of the United Farm Workers. The leaders knew that in order for the union to have real strength, they had to look beyond just aligning itself with labor or the Latino community. The UFW then forged strong coalitions with the Jewish community, the gay and lesbian community, African-American leaders, Hollywood celebrities, students, and churches. And the goal was not only to spread the word about the cause of the farm workers, but also to insulate ourselves from attacks that it was a one-dimensional effort. I remember when I first got involved in the issue of marriage equality, um, the United Farm Workers decided to support uh, the issue, and I remember the United Farm Workers got so many emails um, from people, from our supporters, um, and a few from some priests, and they were questioning, why was the UFW involved in this issue? What does this have to do with farm workers? And we got a lot of people saying, stick to your own issue. And then a few months later, um, when the UFW was having a labor dispute with, with Gallo Wine, um, we had figured out through our research that a lot of Gallo Wine is sold in San Francisco. So we went to... Um, <laughs> So we went, to, uh, we went to Jeff Kors in Equality California. We asked them to send out emails to their supporters and to join us and to organize a joint rally with United Farm Workers and with Equality California. And it was a very successful um, event. And, you know, Jeff told me, you know, a couple days later, he got the same kind of pushback that, uh, that the United Farm Workers got, you know, asking Jeff, uh, why are you guys involved with farm workers? What does this have to do um, with gay rights? And so we came, you know, both of us came to the conclusion that we had to do a better job of educating our supporters about the strength of us working together and that there was a long history with, two of, with both of our causes because I think, especially with, within the United Farm Workers, people sort of have made, not within the United Farm Workers, but our larger supporter base, people have sort of made my grandfather into this very iconic, non-controversial person, but he was absolutely, completely the opposite of that. Um, so we had to remind people that my grandfather was a big supporter of the gay and lesbian community, and the gay and lesbian community was a big supporter of, of the many battles that we had with, the, um, with our different campaigns. Um, and finally, uh, another issue that came up is organizational diversity is an absolute strength and key component for a social movement. And there are many reasons to not wanting to expand the internal workings of a group, issues such as trust, Consistency and loyalty are usually the reasons to not want to include others with diverse opinions or different cultural backgrounds. 
The easiest thing is to include diversity within our staff or on our board of directors, but we realize that it's not enough. The real challenge is to have diversity across the entire organization through our membership, our donor base, our sponsors, and our political support. I was reminded that Cesar Chavez was heavily criticized for having non-Latinos in leadership positions, but he believed that having other people involved only added to the success of this mostly Latino union. He knew that having people with different backgrounds and experiences could only serve the union better because they would bring different opinions. So the effectiveness of social movements in the U.S. will either be strengthened or weakened in the years to come. The one thing that we must continue to do is to come together like we did today to share best practices and valuable lessons learned. And I think one of the most important lessons that I learned um, from my grandfather and from folks like Give and, and other uh, leaders is that when you're speaking to a group, you always want to leave people with an ask. What do we want you to do? And so today, um, I was reminded that the farm workers um, today, through legislation, are asking Governor Brown to make it easier for workers in the fields to organize. And so we're asking people to go to ufw.org to get more information and to please join us in this fight as we um, move forward. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the panel discussion. Um, I'm at the University at Albany, but I'm also currently on loan to the National Science Foundation, which is a federal government agency. So I'll talk quickly to try and beat the federal shutdown. <laughs> In looking at the material um, as a social scientist, I wanted to think about not only what lessons could be learned from other movements, but what lessons potentially we could learn about those prior movements. What lessons we could learn about those prior movements from what is currently happening. And one of the things that I was particularly interested in is how we think about legislative judicial interactions. How we think about the engagement of courts and legislatures as a movement, but also what it tells us about movements. And most of the material we've seen in recent years around this issue has been framed uh, mostly around activist judges. Now, this is not an original frame for social movements to have to deal with. It's been around, I think, for about in an active um, capacity since desegregation. But, you know, you can go back to the 18th century and see it. It is interesting to me that the traditional response to this frame has been to highlight judicial review or the constitutional role of courts in the political system. And one of the things I was curious about is that as social scientists know from the evidence, there is very little evidence that courts and legislatures engage in conflict and they are much more likely to be in accord. And so, in a way, what I was interested in is interrogating the frame from the last few years and then I want to link it back in to what it tells us as a movement and what it tells us about prior movements and I'm using all of the things you would actually think about. One of the things we find in, in uh, the same-sex marriage activities is federal and state courts act in the absence of express legislative preferences. So they act early, but wherever they can, they're going to find a way to incorporate legislatures. And we learned this in Connecticut, we learned this in uh, Vermont. In the earliest days, they will try and involve legislatures. 
And here's the take-home point. They follow legislative preferences no matter the direction or age. And the only outlier here is actually Iowa in 2009. And the only thing that changes this direction is if there's some recent indication by the legislature of a different legislative preference. For example, in California, passing domestic partnerships. Or in Vermont or elsewhere, where they could show that same-sex couples were identified through adoption or other mechanisms. Or incorporation of some form like civil unions. If they can find something that is different. I call this my sunrises slide. And state courts always follow state constitutional amendments. This is not self-evident. I'm sure many people in, who are in here know that when you allow ordinary people to write legislation through popular initiatives, they're not the best legislative drafters. So, but it tends that courts will follow them. A point I'm sure it doesn't need to be raised in California. If they acted contradictory, higher courts acted to ensure the, legislature, the legislative preference was in accord. And my favourite point, which I think of as they also don't quite trust, they'd rather have the, uh, the legislature interpreting things, they follow the outcome of statewide popular initiatives unless it's inconsistent with the legislative preferences. I think that I wanted to present this because in many ways it's a lesson we've already known. It's a lesson that we've known from uh, looking at the, the removal of sodomy prohibitions, it's a lesson that we know from the uh, earlier around interracial marriage, and it's a lesson that we know even going back into uh, desegregation. Even though there has been subsequent myth creation around that those were court actions, we've somehow rewritten sodomy prohibitions being removed as exclusively court actions. In 26 states, they were removed by legislative action. So we've sort of written legislatures out because they create a problem. And the problem they create is you can't uh, construct the movement as being consistent with majority rule unless you create this logic of um, that it's somehow acting contrary. So we've allowed the opponents to construct a frame and then bought into those frames. One of the things I find interesting about this that we can find from the, the uh, research on this is that if courts act, we find three occasions where they act. And I'd like to uh, point these out. In the earliest stages, we find legislative indifference. And here in California in 1975, when the courts became involved, it wasn't quite legislative indifference, but we found courts involved early in a number of other locations where the legislature was not yet interested in becoming involved. We find a legitimation function where the legislature will be asking for courts to legitimate their activities and confirm what they have already done. And it's interesting to see that this this notion is consistent with uh, courts acting in both directions. I wanted to highlight the last one, because 
in many ways, I think the future of the movement is going to be in two separate directions. The next five to ten years will be in two separate directions. One will be a movement where states, through legislative action, introduce same-sex marriage. This is consistent with what we've seen in prior movements. This is consistent with how we've seen the action occur. There are ways where there are lots of court actions, then there are movements into legislatures, and then there are movements back into court action. So in part, I think you'll see actions, and I would say New York or Rhode Island or other states will engage in this activity where the legislature itself engages with the issue, where the courts are not going to be the centre of action. But the second set of states I think we're going to see is going to engage around what I call legislation, legislative salvation, saving the legislature from its past self. That is, where the courts will be invoked to remove restrictions that are no longer consistent with what the legislature wants. And one of the activities that we're going to see in many states is they're now hitting the barrier that they created 10, 15 years ago. It is no longer consistent with what the movement has generated, with what public opinion has shifted to. And states are being restricted in their ability to legislate by uh, their prior statutes and worse, by their prior constitutional amendments. And so I think we're going to see a number of states invoking court actions or court actions being invoked by the movements in ways that allow them to move forward, that will save them from their own prior actions. And these two paths may be occurring simultaneously. And actually, if you think back a decade or so to the removal of sodomy prohibitions, you actually can remember states this activity going on and this being part of the um, underpinning of states moving forward. So what I wanted to highlight today was, in a way, when we're thinking about these social movements and their engagement with the larger issues, we've got to think about... Let's see if I have it. We've got to think of courts and legislatures as part of one conversation. I think in many ways to tell that to an audience in California is a little self-evident. But in many locations, we tend to think of courts as a sole voice on this. Instead of thinking of them as part of one conversation where our engagement with it is actually uh, part of an overall engagement of a larger issue. We've got to engage both institutions as one, and we've got to have every legal, think of every legal interaction as part of a strategy that relates to an expectation of legislative interactions. My colleague and I spoke to Beth Robinson and Susan Murray a year after they had actually initiated the case that was successful in Vermont. And we asked them some questions that other people hadn't asked them one of which was, why had you not brought this case earlier? 
And as private lawyers, they had been literally begged by their clients to engage in same-sex marriage cases a year, two years earlier. And they kept saying, the legislature is not ready. No, they didn't say they thought the court was not ready. They thought the legislature was not ready. And they thought of this as one conversation. When they went to the court, they were talking directly to the legislature. And when they talked to the legislature, they thought in some ways they also, the court answered on its behalf. And the last piece I'll leave you with is something that comes from running the numbers from newspapers, from looking at um, research that Daniel Chomsky and I have engaged in for the last five or six years. That is that the long-term myth creation around this area about responsibility is exactly that, a myth. Institutions are involved because they are invoked or because they wish to become involved. And that in, in many occasions on this, we reconstruct who, are, who were the primary institutions to fit with where movements are now. So a decade or two later, we reconstruct sodomy prohibitions and their removal to take out the legislatures. Two decades after engagement with uh, interracial marriage, people had removed legislative action on that issue. And that we should actively engage as movements and as scholars that myth creation. We should end the myth. But the second result, I think, is much more interesting. One of the things we've consistently found is that no matter the result, no matter the institution in which an activity is engaged, any activity by either court or legislature leads to a rise in public opinion. So even in states where they had constitutional amendments that restricted same-sex marriage, we found that this would lead to a gentle rise in support overall for same-sex marriage, a rise and trend that would continue. To me, that is probably the most interesting of findings. It means that movements have, you know, Daniel and I are not the most optimistic people, but we often point out this is an amazing finding because you can watch movements rise and head towards victory by watching how the population, when forced to think through issues, responds by becoming more positive about it, even as the very activities might show us a negative result. And I think in combination with what uh, David raised earlier, and the last speaker raised a minute ago, this is about longevity. That these show that the conversation is engaged for an extended period of time, but is a conversation that actually impacts upon the public and shapes the long-term views that they have. I'll leave it at that point. Thank you. I'm also really happy to be on this panel and to share with the colleagues here because, as you've heard already, there are so many important reasons for us to study the history and lessons of what we are calling other movements. But I just want to begin by saying, as, as Christine and others have pointed out, that 
they're not always other movements because many of us are parts of many movements and movements themselves overlap. Having said that and noting that overlap, I think there are really three important reasons to study, quote unquote, other movements. And it's been something that has really motivated me really throughout my adult life, not only in my career, but in my own personal passion for history. And the three reasons are inspiration, inheritance, the obligation we bear to those who built the world that we live in and work to make it better, and instruction. There's a lot we can learn from the successes, from the failures, from the struggles. And so just trying to zip through some of the quick lessons that have struck me in my study and in my inspiration and in my work as an activist myself, I think there are many lessons, many of which we've heard indicated today. I mean, one is that movements, social justice causes, have lots of divisions. And there are struggles and sometimes bitter fights and arguments within pretty much any movement you can point to, no matter how successful and even at the periods of the greatest success. Uh, in our movement, we've had a lot of turmoil and drama and struggle over choices, for example, about should we be going to court or should we be working in the legislature or in the arena of public opinion? Should we, we, we be working at the state level or the federal level? These were the exact same fault lines that in many cases divided and certainly roiled for example, the women's suffrage movement and the uh, struggle to win women the right to vote. And anyone who reads that history will just see almost the transcript of the meeting you just came out of yesterday rehearsed a century earlier uh, with the same bitterness and the same what I think of as false either-ors that sometimes get imposed on us and on movements and we impose on one another. Uh, a second, I think, recurrent lesson and phenomenon in movements is what I called in my very first law review article, which I mentioned because we're here at the Williams Institute, home of scholarship, uh, before I stopped being a real lawyer and started doing advocating instead. Um, and it was what I called the tropes of dehumanization and very lawyerly kind of thing to talk about. And what I meant by that was that if you look at the history of st people's struggle to win full participation in society and even to claim their common humanity, what they were always up against were the same kinds of stigmas, languages, smears, and fear-mongering against their own humanity. Spreading illness, immorality, animal behavior, selfishness, coming after the kids, whether it was the Jews in the Middle Ages, or immigrants, the Irish, the Italians, Latinos to this country, whether it was gay people today, that we often associate some of those phrases. You look back at the language and the tactics used by the opponents of equality and inclusion, and there's an eerie identity that recurs again and again and again. And a related point to that is that the opposition is often very connected. They may not think of themselves as connected, but the arguments they're making and many of the same forces that are today on the front lines against gay people were the same forces, the same institutions, in many cases the same funders, and certainly have the spiritual heirs that opposed racial equality, women's equality, reproductive freedom, and we could go right down the list. Another lesson from history and something we can learn from the struggles and work of others in other movements is that history and movements go through periods of creeping and leaping. There are periods where people are working just as hard, just as smartly, are just as right as can be, 
and they are struggling against the headwinds. The moment is not right. They are laying the groundwork, and they don't even necessarily live to see the fruits of their labor. And there are other periods where other people, or sometimes if they're lucky, the same people are doing the same things they've been doing for years, saying the same things, making the same kind of case, repeating it now for the umpteenth time, and history clicks, and it moves, and the earth moves. And if you think about it, for example, from 1776 until 1848 was 72 years. In 1848 was the convention proclaiming the rights of women and beginning the, what we think of as the modern women's suffrage movement, which took, by the way, then another 72 years, exactly the same period, before women won the right to vote in 1920. Only one of the signers of the Declaration of the Rights of Women lived to be able to cast her vote. It's not that the people in 1920 were necessarily doing anything that much more brilliant or better or working in better partnership or having learned the lessons better than the people in 1848 or 1860s or 1870s or 1880s. It's that sometimes it takes a long time. And sometimes you have to lay the groundwork and you have to keep your eyes on the prize. A related lesson to that, and some of you will have heard this phrase coming from me before, is that number one, the best thing to do is win. You fight to win. You think about how can you win. You look at the strategy for winning. You believe you can win. You work to win. But you don't always win every battle. But what you can do is make sure that you're at least fighting every battle so as to if you cannot win, and I want to repeat that part because people leave this part out when they quote me on this point, if you cannot win, you have at least fought so as to lose forward so as to make the case, so as to lay the groundwork, so as to put yourself in place for the moment where that history click happens and the luck coincides with your work and you then win. This is a lesson not only that our movement has had to learn painfully, but that other movements have had to learn well and you just alluded to it a few moments ago. Another lesson from history is that wins don't come, not only not overnight, but they don't come all in one place at the same time. The, the history, particularly of social justice movements in the United States, but I dare say around the world, is that they occur in what I call patchwork. Gains here, some states move forward, while others resist or even regress, getting worse before they get better. But the interplay of the conversations, the tactical gains, the legal changes, state by state, community by community, demographic by demographic in patchwork is what sets the stage for the ultimate national resolution that the particular movement is struggling for. And another lesson from other movements that has, I think, been crucial for us to come to understand and that we've seen evidenced again in the, in the comments by my colleagues today is that no group in movement or in the campaign that is maybe the centerpiece of the movement wins it by itself. We need allies, we need coalitions, and ultimately we, moved, we need to move that critical mass of the public itself. So the work of a movement, and particularly the work of a campaign seeking to foster, spearhead, excite, and leverage a movement, has to be aimed at bringing more people in. How do you do that? Well, another lesson from another movement, again, the women's suffrage movement, words that I carry with me all the time, I quote in many, many speeches, 
comes from the woman who actually coined the word feminism. And she was a French suffragist in the 1800s, one of those who did not live to cast the vote in this movement that she launched. And her name was Ubertino Claire. And the lesson she gave me and all of us is, I think, at the center of what we must remember as we engage our movement and seek to move that critical mass of the public to our side. And it goes like this. She said, if you would obtain a right, first you must proclaim it. In other words, if you want people to rise, you can't go in telling them they're not going to get there, or it's not important, or it doesn't matter, or you don't expect them to understand it, or they'll never get it, or they're so evil or bad or corrupt or whatever that they can't get there. Instead, you must talk about how they can get there, why this is the right thing. You must summon up the world of possibility that inspires people to rise to fairness. So taking all these lessons from history, Freedom to Marry, my organization, and many of the others who've been working on this, developed what we call our Roadmap to Victory, the strategy that we wanted to see our movement follow in order to end the exclusion from marriage, which in turn, I have always believed is important because marriage is not just about marriage, but instead because marriage is a vocabulary in which people come to understand what the Vermont Supreme Court called, in its marriage decision, our common humanity. Marriage is important in its own right, but also is an engine of changing people's understanding of who we are and why exclusion is wrong and what the enlarged possibilities that should belong to all of us must look like. And in this roadmap to victory, the strategy that Freedom to Marry calls us all to action to end this, struggle, to end this exclusion in this movement, we talk about three tracks of work that must be pursued by our movement, not in sequence, but synergistically, reinforcing one another, avoiding false either-ors to get where we want to go. And those three tracks of work are drawing from the lessons of history, to win more states, to grow the majority for marriage, to create the climate of possibility in which elected officials and judges can rise, and to tackle and end federal discrimination. Now, I talked about false either-ors. Some people might say, well, why work in the states if you can just do it through all one swoop in the federal courts or in Congress? And the answer is because although it would be great if we could do that, members of Congress come from somewhere. And courts sit somewhere. And they hear something. And what they hear and where they sit and where they come from is states and communities and networks. And so the way to get national resolution we know in our movement, from other movements, the way to get Congress or the Supreme Court, the national actors, to act is to create the climate and the platform that gets them to act. And the answer to how you do that is to get a critical mass of states and a critical mass of public opinion to win more states, to grow the majority, and tackle federal discrimination. And doing these pieces together is how our movement, and it's how the suffrage movement, and it's how the desegregation movement and the pro-integration movement and the reproductive freedom movement and all the other movements on whose shoulders we stand and the lessons we draw from have had to proceed through the patchwork in this country. And that brings me to the final set of lessons. I was honored earlier this year to be asked to give the Martin Luther King Jr. Day speech at the University of Michigan. And 
because of that importance of that occasion and the greatness of what I felt that honor in the name of my, and I'm sure many people's hero, I decided not to just do my usual riffing and to actually write a speech. And you can read that speech now online. And the two lessons that I want to do underscore in that speech, which I titled, Is the Freedom to Marry Inevitable? Drew from King and others to answer that question. And so the, the lessons I will leave you with from these movements that we cherish and the movements we're part of and the movements we're working in today are the answer to the question, is the freedom to marry believable, means you have to hold two thoughts in your head. Number one, you must believe that we can win because putting out the vision of possibility and encouraging people to rise and not writing them off or giving them, them or you an excuse to not do the work, that's the key to getting where you want to go. On the other hand, it's not inevitable because unless you do the work, it's not gonna happen. Change does not just waft in the way you want it, you must do it. And so the lessons of history in this great country with its tremendous challenges and flaws and defects are that we have to struggle, we have to work hard, we don't win every battle, and we don't always get it. But if we do the work, change is possible, change does happen, we can get others to rise, and we can make it a better place. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.